Let's pray. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we pray that as we look now at this vision that you showed to John, that you help us to understand what it means and that you will thrill and comfort us with the great news of what Jesus has done and the reality that is now in heaven. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. The vast majority of churches in this world today are pathetic, hopeless. The best of them are the churches in Asia and South America and Africa. They're the churches that are growing. But most of those churches have got no idea about biblical teaching. They don't have access to Bibles, a whole heap of them. They don't have trained leaders. And so they are susceptible to all kinds of false and crazy teaching. And without proper teaching, the churches are full of immorality. In Africa, Asia and South America, there is little statistical difference between church people and non-church people in terms of crime rate, divorce rate, rate of pregnancies outside of marriage, domestic violence, etc. You only need to look at Rwanda and the genocide between Christians there a few years ago, between Christians, professing Christians of different tribes, to see that violence is still a feature among church people. The churches are basically indistinguishable from the world. And in many of these places, the church, the church hangs by a thread. In China and in India and in places in South America and Africa, Christians face all kinds of persecution, from social or family shunning, through to loss of jobs, through to arrest, torture, execution. And that's where the church is growing. Meanwhile, in America and Australia and especially in Europe, the church is going backwards. The church is shrinking. Churches are racked by what is called liberal theology. That is a theology that says that the Bible is not God's word. A theology that rationalizes away things like miracles, Jesus' resurrection, heaven, hell. Statistics tell us that in the Western world, only about 2% of churchgoers ever share their faith with anyone else. 2%. The other 98% either don't know the gospel or else they're too scared or too busy to ever share it. And again, the statistics show very little moral difference between churchgoers in the Western world and the rest of society. In terms of wealth, lifestyle, divorce rates and so on, the Western church is pretty much indistinguishable from the world. And then you move to the so-called 1040 window. Now, the 1040 window is located from uh, 10 degrees south to 40 degrees north of the equator. It includes places like North Africa, the Middle East, and Central Asia. Two-thirds of the world's population, 4 billion people, live in the 69 nations of the 1040 window. 95% of those people are unevangelized. It is estimated that 1.6 billion of these people have never, ever, even once had the chance to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. In many countries, in the 1040 window, the penalty for sharing the good news of Jesus is death. As one missionary organisation puts it, truly the 1040 window remains the darkest and most inhospitable territory to the cause of Christ. The church on earth desperately weak. Very, very much like the seven churches we've been seeing in the book of Revelation, those churches in first century Turkey, the churches that this book of Revelation is addressed to, churches today 
Just like those churches, we struggle with persecution, we struggle with false teaching, and we struggle with sin and temptation. It doesn't seem to matter where you look, there's not much encouragement. If you look to the non-Christian world, you see contempt, hostility, persecution, aggression. Uh, If you look to church leaders, you see false teaching and failure. And and if we look at ourselves, we see weak, tempted, struggling Christians. No wonder it's so hard. No wonder it's so hard to believe. No wonder it's so hard to keep on going as a Christian. From down here, it all looks so fragile. But as we've seen so far in this book of Revelation, the view from down here is not the only view there is. In this vision recorded in the book of Revelation, we've been invited to see things from heaven's perspective. And that's exactly what happens here again in Revelation chapters 4 and 5. We're actually taken into heaven and given a glimpse of things from the perspective of heaven. Chapter 4. Chapter 4, John sees a door into heaven. A voice calls him, come in, come in to heaven and see, literally, what must happen after these things. I don't think the after these things means after chapter 3 of Revelation. The after these things, it's uh, the, 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 the words after these things, they're an allusion to language in the visions of Daniel and Ezekiel. Their end time visions talk about stuff that happens after these things. So John is being invited into heaven to see the fulfillment of the after these things. That is the visions of Daniel and Ezekiel. Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1. Have a look with me. Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1. After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had, heard, I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet, this is Jesus' voice, said... Come up here and I will show you what, ta- what must take place, literally like it says in Daniel and Ezekiel, after these things. So in his vision, John enters heaven. Uh, there he sees, he, he sees a throne. He sees a glorious figure on the throne shining with, with colours like precious stones and around him is a rainbow reminding us of, of Noah from the Old Testament, isn't it? And God's mercy. Verse 2. At once I was in the spirit and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. A rainbow resembling resembling an emerald encircled the throne. Uh, This throne is surrounded by 24 elders. 24? Twice 12? Twice 12? Uh, Probably referring to the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles. Uh, put it together, this is a, this is a heavenly representation of, of God's leaders or, or the, the leaders of God's people or perhaps of God's people as a whole. Uh, they are also seated on thrones, like they've been promised in chapter 2 and 3. Uh, crowns on their heads. And uh, like on Mount Sinai, when God gave the law to his people, there's thunder and lightning. Verse 4. Surrounding the throne, there were 24 other thrones. And seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white 
and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. John also sees seven lamps. That's a reference also to the Old Testament, to the book of Zechariah. The lamps represent God's perfect Holy Spirit. There in verse 5, before the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Uh, John also sees an ocean, a sea. Now, the ocean in the Old Testament, it often represents dark, chaotic forces in opposition to God. But not this sea. This sea is calm. Clear as crystal, God's enemies have been subdued. Verse 6. Also before the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. John also sees four creatures. Creatures like a lion, an ox, a man, and an eagle. What does that represent? Well, there's a, a rabbinic saying that dates back to about 300 AD. The mightiest among the birds is the eagle. The mightiest among the domestic animals is the bull. The mightiest among the wild beasts is the lion. And the mightiest among all is man. So something like that thinking is behind this. These creatures probably represent all living creatures on earth. But, but we're also, we'll also see that they are... Uh, they're not just earthly creatures, they're um, some kind of angelic beings. They're very, very much like uh, the, the seraphim of Isaiah chapter 6. Remember the scene in Isaiah 6 where the seraphim are, uh, are around the throne of God shouting, holy, holy, holy? That's exactly what these seraphim are doing. They have wings and eyes all over them. Like in Isaiah 6, they continually the praise the one on the throne uh, who we now see is God himself. Halfway through verse 6. In the centre, around the throne, were four living creatures. And they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under his wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. seraphs and the elders that they, they worship God they declare that he's, he deserves to be worshipped he's worthy to be worshipped he's worthy to be honoured he's worthy to be obeyed he's worth serving with all your might because he created everything and he sustains everything verse 9 Whenever the living creatures give glory honour and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who, who lives forever and ever the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power for you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. John then sees a scroll God is holding it in his right hand. Uh, it's got writing on, on the front and the back. And it's sealed with seven seals. Now, contrary to what was suggested at our Bible study, that's not the seals that swim and eat fish. No, no, it's, it's more like wax seals that you, that you seal a, a wedding invitation with. Uh, an angel asks, who is worthy to open this scroll? But there's no one. No one is worthy. Uh, John weeps. It looks like the scroll cannot be opened, like Naomi's glued jar. We're never going to know what it contains. Chapter 5 and verse 1. 
Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Looks like there's no one who can do it. Uh, But then one of the elders points out a character to John. He says, this is the lion of the tribe of Judah. It's a reference to Genesis chapter 49 in the Old Testament. Uh, God says in Genesis that the original man, Judah, was like a lion. And he says that one of his descendants will be the king of the world. So here he is, this Judean king of the world. We also see that he's the root of David. That is, he is the one from whom David received his kingdom and his power and his promises. This this lion, this, this great Judean king, he's won a victory. And he is now able to open the scroll, the sealed scroll. Verse 5. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. John looks for this lion, but what he sees instead is a lamb. Now, that's not exactly what you expect, is it? I mean, lion, big, strong, fierce, big teeth. You call a British football team the Lions. Go, you Lions! But a lamb? Small, weak, helpless, bad. I mean, I know some people support a team called the Bunnies, but, but no one calls their team the Lammies. Come on, you Lammies. Just doesn't sound convincing, does it? John looks for a lion. He sees a lamb, but not any ordinary lamb. This lamb has been sacrificed. Of course, that's an Old Testament idea, isn't it? The idea of a sacrificial lamb. God told the Israelites to sacrifice a lamb as a sin offering to make atonement for their sins. Also, the Passover sacrifice. You remember when, when uh, Israel was set free from Egypt and sent off to the promised land? That Passover sacrifice is a Passover lamb. This lamb has been sacrificed, but somehow it's alive again, standing at the throne. And we see this is no little pet lamb. No way, he has seven horns. Horns in the Old Testament symbolise power, so he has a complete perfect power. And this lamb also has God's perfect sevenfold spirit on the lamb. It looks like, it looks like seven eyes because this lamb sees everything, knows everything. So now here in John's vision, this seven-horned, seven-eyed, slain-but-living lamb who is a lion approaches God, comes to God, and he takes the scroll. Verse 6. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the centre of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth, He came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. For those of you who did the uh, the Bible study on Daniel chapter seven, you'll just—it's screaming Daniel seven. This stuff isn't. It's just full of echoes from Daniel seven. As the Son of Man comes on the clouds of heaven, 
approaches the Ancient of Days and is given authority, glory and sovereign power. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. And now just as in Daniel chapter 7, when all of creation worships uh, the, the Son of Man, here in Daniel 7, all creation worships the Lamb. First, that the seraphim and the elders sing praise to the Lamb. They say, he is worthy to take the scroll. And why? Because of the way he was killed. Because by his death, he purchased people from all over the world for God. So they are now a kingdom and priests to serve God. So they will one day rule on earth. Verse 8. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp. And they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. That's a nice image, don't you reckon? Prayers of the saints as incense before God. You ever feel like your prayers don't make it past the ceiling? Here's the heavenly reality. Think again. And they sang a new song, the four living creatures and the 24 elders. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. That's all language we've heard before in the book of Revelation, isn't it? Do you remember back in chapter 1 where John was introducing and he says chapter 1 verse 5, he's talking about Jesus, chapter 1 verse 5 and he says, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. It's not really any mystery who this is, is it? Through his sacrificial death, the Lamb has redeemed a people to be king, a kingdom and priests. He's praised. He's worthy. And next, thousands of God's angels worship the Lamb. Verse 11. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000, they encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders in a loud voice. They sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honour and glory and praise. And then finally, all of creation joins in, worshipping God and the Lamb. Verse 13, Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth, and under the earth, and on the sea, and all that is in them singing. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honour and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. I don't know if you've ever been in a really, really big crowd like a, a, a sporting event or something like that. A powerful experience. I've never been to a Welsh rugby game in Wales. It's one of my, on my bucket list of things that I'd love to do. I don't know if you've ever seen a, a Welsh rugby game. They can all sing in Wales. And they all sing together, like 50,000 of them singing, Swing low, sweet chariot. Or something like it's, if you've ever seen it on TV, it's so powerful. Can you imagine the scene here? As all of creation joins in singing praise to God and to the Lamb. It'd be spine-tingling, don't you reckon? Okay, that's chapters 4 to 5. A vision of heaven. Strange vision in some ways, wouldn't you say? A seven-horned, seven-eyed lamb who is a lion takes a scroll from a figure on a throne and then all creation worships them. 
strange in some ways. But, but have you worked out what it represents? Because it's not actually all that difficult, is it? But see if you can answer these questions in your own mind. You ready? See if you can answer the questions in your own mind. Who's the one on the throne? Do you know? It says it here, doesn't it? That, that, that's God. That's God himself. We're told that. Okay, and you hit again, answer this one. Who's the lamb who is a lion? That's Jesus, isn't it? Slain on the cross for our sins, now alive again, the, the, the king in the line of Judah. So, answer this one in your mind. When is it that this happens? When is it that Jesus, slain and risen again, approaches God and receives the scroll? It's after his resurrection when he ascends to the right hand of the Father. This is what theologians call the ascension. This is a visionary picture of the ascension of Jesus. And what's the scroll? We're told. It's God's plan to save Jesus' people. That's why Jesus is the only one who is worthy, because by his blood he purchased people for God to make them a kingdom and priests and to reign. He is the only one who's died for us so we can be saved. This is God's plan being opened up to save his people. And as part of that, a necessary consequence of that, this is also God's plan to judge Jesus' enemies. When the Son of Man comes to the Ancient of Days, he's given all glory, authority and sovereign power. In Daniel chapter 7, all of the kingdoms of the earth must fall before this king. Or last week, Psalm 110 verse 1, what happens when the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand? He says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So here, here is God's plan to save his people and to judge his enemies. Begun at the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's what the vision means. Here's the point. Jesus has now ascended to the right hand of God as the triumphant Messiah and sacrifice, and the scroll is open. His plan to save his people, his plan to judge his enemies, has begun, and it cannot be stopped, and it will not be stopped until Jesus returns and puts a stop to it. Here is a picture of what will happen now in world history from the ascension of Jesus until the return of Jesus. <clears throat> well, friends, from down here, the church on earth looks desperately fragile. I tried to paint a very bleak picture at the beginning, but it's not an unrealistic picture. Desperately fragile. Is your experience, do you ever look out on the world and just feel small and weak and helpless. Do you hear the jibes against Christians? Do you hear the jibes against about how we're anachronistic and intolerant and ignorant, hypocrites? Does it feel to you like the opposition against Christianity is so enormous and powerful and scary? Do you look at Christian teachers and see failure and false teaching? Do you look at yourself and see sin and compromise? Does it all look just too hard? Do you feel like throwing in the towel, giving it up? Well, friends, you're not the first. In fact, you feel very, very, very much like those churches in first century Turkey must have felt as they faced 
persecution and false teaching and as they struggled with immorality and keeping their first love and the church here on earth is very fragile the view from here does not look good but friends the answer for us is the same as the answer for those first century churches it's here in revelation 4 and 5 we need to look to the view from heaven Do you feel like the world is too strong? Like the opposition is too fierce? Look to heaven. Look to heaven. That, that big ocean of chaos and resistance against God, it lies at the feet of his throne and it is as clear as glass. There is not a whimper coming from the enemies of God. Meanwhile, as heaven looks on in rapt attention, Jesus has ascended to the right hand of God and the scroll has been opened and God's sovereign, unstoppable plan is in effect and his enemies will lose and his people will win. Not immediately. No, no, this is the God encircled by the rainbow. This is the God who patiently waits until all his people have been gathered, but his unstoppable plan is underway. And nothing will stop it until every knee bows. And every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord. Do you feel in yourself like you can't keep going? Like you're not going to make it to the end? Look to heaven. Jesus has bought you with his blood. He owns you. Jesus has opened the scroll. Sure, you can't save yourself, but no one and nothing is going to stop Jesus from saving you. feel like your prayers go unheard think again look at the vision of heaven they're like perfume in the nostrils of God do you feel like a tiny weak minority is you know a hundred of us sit here worshipping God and the lamb while the rest of the world is silent no 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 look again look at heaven Look at the, the myriad of angels, 10,000 times 10,000. Look at the elders and the, and the seraphim. Look at, look at heaven's view of creation. Everyone, everything worships God and the Lamb. You're not a minority. The whole of heaven is with you. And the day will soon come when the whole of creation will be with you in worshipping God and the Lamb. You're not a minority. No, no, no. From here, friends, it looks fragile, but this is not the only view there is. And so the message of Revelation 4 to 5 for us is this. Look to heaven. See Jesus at the right hand of God, worthy to open the scroll. See the elders, see the living creatures, see the angels, listen to their praise. Know this is reality now in heaven. Know this is the reality that will be here on earth. And friends, join the chorus. Press on. Keep trusting and serving Jesus. Look to heaven and press on. Let's pray. Almighty God, our gracious and holy and magnificent heavenly Father, we thank and praise you because you are seated on your throne in glory and honour and power. We thank and praise you because the, the lion who is a lamb has opened the scroll of your unstoppable plan of judgment and salvation. We thank and praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ who was slain, that we might be purchased to be a kingdom and priests to serve you.
praise you for your magnificent sovereign plan. We pray, Heavenly Father, bring it on. Bring on that day when finally every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.